Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Amen. So uh, I, I don't know what you think as you watch all of that. And I, I guess uh, there's a lot of things rolling around in my head this morning, and that's a dangerous thing because I don't know that they can all come together and make sense. But uh, uh, here goes. Uh, first thing, I, I just want to ask you this question. You and I have been invited, called, created to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Have you been an ambassador of reconciliation this week? Have you been an ambassador of reconciliation in social media, in your home, in your family, with your friends, in your conversation? Would people say of you, I, I, I feel more together, I feel more at peace, I feel more hopeful because I encountered that person. I, I feel like something is better because of that. And I know we're in all kinds of scattered places and we're doing all kinds of scattered things and I know, you know, we're far into this pandemic and in you know, uh, you know, sheltering in place and all of that. And I know there's a push for churches to meet and there's some folks that think we shouldn't meet and there's all that energy going on. Have you been an ambassador of reconciliation? And when we stop and we start to think about those realities and what it means, I, I know we could talk a lot about things that, you know, we need. We need to meet. We need to be face-to-face. We need to be together. I, I, I know. But when I watch a video like that, I'm reminded of this. Something significant has happened in these months. Living rooms have become sanctuaries. Homes have become places of worship. The church has been pushed out of the walls of being contained within some defined space. God no longer has to dwell down at the temple. He he gets to spill out. And not just in some philosophical way, but literally, even in this moment, we are worshiping in all kinds of sanctuaries that maybe we didn't think about as that sacred space, but we can now. And I just want to encourage you, and I want you to think about this. I know that we are six months into this process, and none of us thought it would last this long and all of that, but, but I've been thinking about Jeremiah, and specifically I've been thinking about Jeremiah 29, 11, and I've been thinking about that whole story And the children of Israel were carried off into exile by Babylon. And nobody could see Babylon as a tool of God. Nobody could see Babylon as something that had any sort of significance. It was only something to be brought down. It was only something to fight against. It was only something to destroy. And God sends word to Jeremiah, to these people who are saying, we got to get through this, we got to go home, we got to go home, we got to go home. And the word comes to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to give you a hope and a future, to prosper you and not to harm you. Settle down. Plant your gardens. You're going to be here for a while. And I just want us to think about this. As we search for significance, as we try to make sense out of what's happening around us, are you being an ambassador of reconciliation? Would people say, those people over at Montrose Church, I know they don't understand it all, and I know they don't get it all, and I know they don't all agree, but they are ambassadors of reconciliation. They are people who share the light and hope and the peace of God and the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. 
And they do it in person and they do it on social media and they do it in their conversations with one another because it matters. I was doing some research and thinking about this conversation about significance and overcoming insignificance and what that looks like. And, 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 I, and I started to wonder, especially when we read the story that we're going to share in a moment, I started to wonder about the complexity of human psychology and, and what it takes for a human being to feel significant in their journey and in their life. And then I think about the story that, that we're going to share and the simplicity of what happens in the story. And, and I started to think about these two things, the complexity and the simplicity, and it drove me into some research. And I came across something that I didn't know existed. But there's a whole science called complexity bias, complexity bias. And so when you think about what that means and what that looks like, uh, I, I just maybe you've never heard of it. I never had. And it seems like uh, there's tons of stuff going on uh, that really matter. So uh, listen to this. When faced with two competing hypotheses, we are likely to choose the most complex one. As a result, when we need to solve a problem, we may ignore simple solutions thinking that will never work and instead favor complex ones. So basically, complexity bias says that human beings, and in fact all living creatures, have a bias towards complexity. When we're faced with issues and we're faced with problems, we as human beings don't think of the simple solution. In fact, we are often discounting the simple solutions in favor of the more complex ones. And so in complexity bias science, there are three possibilities, just three possibilities, and I think these are good things to think about. Either a situation is complex, or a situation is simple, or a simple situation is chaotic. So let's define those terms. Complexity is the state of having many parts and being difficult to understand or to find an answer to. Simplicity is the inverse of that. It's something that is easy to understand and it is easy to solve. Chaos is defined as a state of total confusion where there is no order. Now, I think that most of us have the ability to look at a relatively simple situation and break it down into lots of parts. So what the science finds is that human beings have a tendency to do a couple of things. One is that when we look at situations in our lives, we have a tendency, first of all, to see the whole, and the whole may be very simple, but we pick at it and break it apart until we have lots of pieces, and in all the pieces there is complexity. So let me give you an example from the article I read. The article said, you might find a person who is having trouble sleeping. And so that person who's having trouble sleeping will then begin to do all kinds of exploration. They might buy new bedding. They might think about taking supplements. They, they might think about some process by which they are able to sleep better. But the answer might be they need to go to bed earlier. So in that reality of we have a tendency to favor complex things, like for example, if you decided you were going to balance your checkbook, if you just said, I'm going to balance the checkbook, I'm going to do the finances, and, and on the surface, that's pretty simple, but when you get into the details of what that looks like, it, it starts to get more and more complex until it becomes this overwhelming sense this complexity bias, we're told by the science, is a part of our fight-or-flight instinct. And if I just said that to you, it's a part of our fight-or-flight, which part would you think it's a part of? Fight or flight? 
Because the complexity bias is a part of flight. It, it allows us to create complexity so that we have a reason not to engage. Well, I just can't do that. I just don't want to do that. I, now I have a reason that I don't need to do that. It gives us a reason to not engage. Complexity gives us a reason. Now here's where the science gets really interesting. It's not just human beings. It's, it's all creatures who have this complexity bias. So one of the experiments that was done is they took two groups of pigeons and they put them in cages. And in one group uh, of, of the pigeons, the pigeons could perform a specific behavior. And as a result of that, they could get food. In a very short time, that cage full of pigeons figured out how collectively to do the one behavior it would take to get food. They all did the same behavior over and over. They learned it very quickly. They became very uniform. They knew what to do to get fed. In another cage was a group of pigeons who were being fed randomly. It didn't matter what they did. Nothing they did affected the fact that food was going to be given to them. It was just randomly given to them. And in this cage, that group of pigeons began to develop behaviors individually that they thought affected the food. They didn't do it collectively because they couldn't find any sort of science to it. There was nothing in common. So one pigeon bobbed his head, one pigeon turned in circles, one pigeon pecked the wall. Each of them believing that they were affecting the outcome of the food, developing their own prejudices and superstitions about how the food got there. They didn't do anything collectively, but individually they had these beliefs about what was going on. And it seems to me that there's a whole lot of this reality. Because human beings and living creatures do not like chaos. And where we see chaos, where there's a lack of order or there's a lack of explanation, where randomness seems to be going on, we will develop theories of complexity to explain the chaos. I just want to suggest to you that maybe out of this space that we're living in is chaos. That we just don't know. That we just don't understand. And because we are so repelled by the reality that we may not be getting it, that we start to develop all kinds of complex theories and superstitions and conspiracies. And I wish what we could do is recognize that God is God. And God knows the plans He has for us. To prosper us and not to harm us. To give us a hope and a future. And if all of that were true, what, what is intended for evil, God will use for good. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know any other way to live. I don't know any other way to believe life. I don't know any other way to exercise my faith except to trust in God above all the other stuff. To not get my face down, to not get my eyes down, but to look up. And to say over and over and over, God's still in control. Yes, but God's still in control. Yes, but God's still in control. And I wonder if maybe the issue of significance is related into something so very simple. The story of Hagar is recorded for us in Genesis. And as you kind of step into that space with me for a moment this morning, chapter 16, I just want to read you the story and highlight a few things as we share it together. Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And so she said to Abram, 
The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And then Sarah said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave into your arms and now she knows she's pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. And the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert, and it was the spring that is beside the road to shore. And he said to her, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. And then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you're now pregnant. You'll give birth to a son. You'll call him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He'll be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. And she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is why the well is called Berlahai, Rioi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. It's a wild story. As we highlight some of these overcomers, the women overcomers of the Old Testament and into the New, we're going to encounter this sort of wild story over and over. Obviously, there's some things going on traditionally in that culture and time that don't really fit too well in our culture and time. But I see five observations that have to do with significance, and I want us to zero in on them this morning. Number one, when I look at how the significance is unfolding in the story, how people are seeking the significance, the first observation I have is this. The search for significance was highly and narrowly defined. It was highly and narrowly defined. So the characters in this story have all decided what significance will look like. And they have defined it all the way down, narrowed it down and narrowed it down and narrowed it down until they have all concluded that the only way for life to have significance is for there to be a child, an heir. So so now, suddenly, it doesn't matter what else is going on in life. It doesn't matter what other things are happening. It doesn't matter about the promised land or the commission of God or the covenant or the promises. It doesn't matter about any of that. All of that has taken back seat to this one desire, this highly and narrowly defined issue in which this is what will fulfill my life. This is what will give me significance. This is what will matter to me. Just stop for a moment and think about how often that happens to us. I bet it's happening to some folks right now where that search for significance, that feeling of being invisible and insignificant. And by the way, there's nothing that holds us together and, and we share more in common than this. We want to matter. We want to matter emotionally. We want to matter vocationally. We want to matter relationally. We want to matter spiritually. We want to matter intellectually. We want to impact our world. We don't have to be famous, but we want to do something that matters. And when you stop and you begin to think about what that looks like, for most of us, we, 
we sort of filter through a lot of things in life. There may be tons of blessings. There may be tons of things that, that God's inviting us to notice and look at and celebrate and attach to. But almost all of us could say, well, I, I've come to a place where I have highly and narrowly defined what happiness would look like, what significance would look like, what fulfillment would look like, what success would look like. And that's what happens to Sarah, and it happens to Abram, and it happens to Hagar. Once they've narrowly defined it, the second thing I observe is this. The search for significance became the sole motivation for their choices. So, so now that, that they've decided that, that the only way to find significance is a child, now they, they sort of decide, okay, so that's what matters most. It matters most that we get a child, and how we get the child doesn't really matter. We're going to figure out some kind of workaround to get this thing that we think gives us significance. And, and we know God has made us a promise. We know God has said he'll provide an heir. We know God has promised that we'll have a child. But he's not doing it in my time. And he's not doing it the way I want. And while it wasn't unusual in that day and age for, for someone to give their servant as another wife, it wasn't unusual for someone to have multiple wives, it wasn't really outside the culture or the norm, still, the choice was not well thought out. So narrowly defined was the answer, the, the, the need for significance so highly and narrowly defined that there began to be workarounds, and, and we can see by the things that begin to happen now that it wasn't well thought out. It wasn't a real great plan. It was sort of a reaction. It was sort of a not wise, deep, mature, methodical sort of choice. It's just a gut reaction to get that thing that we needed and wanted most. And so it begins to, to sort of encroach on the health and well-being of all of the people involved in the process. Number three, the search for significance caused conflict in the family. It shouldn't be surprising that once we narrowly and highly define the significance and then we begin to make choices to get that even though it might be against our better judgment or our maturity or even the will of God then that creates places of conflict that things go on that we get jealous of one another Hagar who, who now has been brought into a space in which she has some ability to contribute, rather than seeing that she could be a part of the greater whole, rather than acting and responding to maturity, rather than seeing that maybe there's a bigger plan here, she begins to fight for her own significance. Oh, I, I have leverage. I, I have a way of powering other people. So, so I'm going to exercise my ability to power other people. I'm going to exercise my ability to put my significance forward. I'm going to step up. I'm going to claim my space. I'm going to take what belongs to me. And she does. And Sarah, Sarah who, who, who put this whole thing in motion, who had so decided that no matter how or what, an heir is the answer. That is where happiness lies. That's what it's all about and made choices to, to achieve that. Now, suddenly, rather than being patient, rather than acting maturely, rather than being the person that stands in those choices and stands in that understanding and, and says, you know, hey, God's going to work this all out. Let, let me bring peace. Let me be an ambassador of reconciliation. No, instead, her own significance. In fact, here's the crazy part. 
what five minutes ago was the only way to happiness she now has no regard for. What five minutes ago was the only thing that would bring her happiness. Now her own significance is way more important than that child. And she mistreats Hagar, and Hagar leaves and runs away. Stage four, the search for significance has become more important than the outcome. So as you follow that story along, now comes this moment where Abram and Sarai and Hagar all believed that this child was the answer, that whatever we had to do to achieve that, but conflict has resulted, and now the whole process has been turned upside down. Now everyone is willing to do away with the child, to, to, to banish the child from the family, because what's more important, the child that five minutes ago was going to bring them happiness, or the significance of who I am, and what is my position, and where do I fit, and is everybody honoring me appropriately? And now we don't even care about what was the one thing. Now we just care about our feelings. We care about how we feel about it, and is everybody doing us justice, and is everybody being fair with us? And I don't know if you noticed this, but everybody in the story is having the same problem. Sarah, who put this whole thing in process, can't even own her own choices. She comes to Abram and says, this is your fault. And Abram, in typical male fashion, says, I'm not in it. This is between you and her. I got nothing to do with it. Uh, yeah, you do. You're kind of in it. You're kind of in it. And each of them are stepping back. Each of them are stepping back. They're stepping into this space that says, it's not mine. It's not mine to fix. It's not my responsibility. Oh, I don't care about that anymore. What I care about is you honoring me. I don't want to be in the conflict. I don't want to be the object. I, I, I want everyone to give me the respect I deserve. Because now, here's what matters most to me. 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 My feelings. My stuff. And it's everybody else's fault. And all of them are blaming the others. Stage number five, the search for significance turns out to be rather simple. So Hagar, now banished from the group, flees into the wilderness. And as she flees into the wilderness, she, she hasn't thought this through. Here she is, a disenfranchised pregnant woman. She doesn't know where her next meal is going to come from. She has no means of supporting herself. It's not like there's lots of other folks around for her to turn to. And so she's out in the middle of nowhere when the Lord appears to her and begins to speak to her and says, listen, here's what I want you to do. Listen to what he says. I want you to humble yourself and put your own significance on the back burner and I want you to go back and I want you to fit in. And I'm going to make you this promise. The child you carry will be the father of a lot of descendants and listen, he's going to be strong and difficult in a lot of ways, and his name's going to be Ishmael, but I'm going to watch over him and you, and I'm going to take care of you, and I hope you understand this. Your significance is not about Sarah, and it's not about Abram, and it's not even about Ishmael, it's about me. And I am the God who sees you. And what if significance is this simple? This might be your favorite verse from now on. You might just decide to put this on a t-shirt. 
And she gave, verse 13, and she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, for I have now seen the one who sees me. I wonder how often in our search for significance, it might be that simple. That what we have created to be this incredibly complex process, where we name this narrowly, highly defined thing that will give us significance, and I bet right now you could name whatever it is in your life that you believe will be that thing. And we make choices that work around so we can get that. That becomes the thing, and our choices reflect that we're after that, and it doesn't really matter. Sometimes we sort of fade and bend and find workarounds because we're trying to get that. And then conflict results because we weren't patient. We didn't wait on God. We, we were in it for all the wrong reasons and all the wrong motivations and all the wrong attitudes. And things get turned upside down. And now we no longer care about the outcome. We care about feeling better. We care about our feelings and people respecting and honoring us, even when we haven't acted honorably. But what if it's this simple? God sees you. He sees you. He sees what's happening in your home, in your family, in your life, in our culture, in our world, in our state, in a pandemic. He sees. And he's not leaving you alone. And if you and I are putting our trust in anything else, we are unnecessarily complicating our lives. This is where faith is. This is where faith lives. It lives right here. I have seen the one who sees me. Maybe that becomes our mantra. That becomes the thing we just quote over and over. As we go through this process, as we go through these very real searches for significance in our life, as we try to overcome our insignificance, and we do, how often should we say to ourselves, God sees me? God sees me. I know that's really simple, but what if it's that simple? God sees me. He really sees me. He sees my heart, he sees my mind, he sees my needs, he sees my context, he sees my family, he sees my disappointments, he sees my hurt, he sees my fears. He he has something, he knows the plans he has for me to prosper me and not to harm me, to give me a hope and a future. And I might not like the way it all unfolds and I might not like the circumstances and I might like what happened, but do I trust this? This is the God who sees me. When I want to run away, when I want to escape, when I want to get out of all the responsibility and the complexity and the conflict, and, ah, and I find myself out in the wilderness with no plan, he shows up and he says, turn yourself around and humble yourself and get back into the life that I've given you and settle down and plant your gardens and do your life and do it well and act responsibly and act faithfully and be gentle and be kind and be loving because I'm the God who sees you. And what if overcoming insignificance is this simple? For Hagar, who overcame her insignificance, it comes down to this thing. She gave praise to God and she gave Him a new name. You are the one who sees me. And she decided she could live, she could be happy, she could find significance because she had seen the one who sees her. Have you, in the midst of all of this craziness and all of this chaos and all of this complexity, have you seen the one who sees you? I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. And I'm just going to close by asking you a few questions.
have you highly and narrowly defined the thing that would give you significance? Take a minute. What is that thing that you believe will give you significance? Has it become the only thing or one of only a few things that you think could make you feel significant? Question number two. Has the search for significance become the driving criteria for the choices you make in your life? In the need and search for significance, are you starting to experience conflict in your life and relationships? Has your need for significance become even more important than how that significance is found? Have you heard yourself saying things like, I'll try anything to feel better. I'll do anything to feel like I matter. Is it possible to find significance in the simple truth that the God of the universe who created you sees you? That he's involved in your life and in your story and in the lives of your family and your children and your grandchildren, if that applies, and in your future. And that he declares that you have significance because you are his child and you are deeply loved. And could you go out into this week as an ambassador of reconciliation, knowing that we don't know how long God will sit us in this place, but we know the plans he has for us prosperous and not to harm us to give us a hope and a future and he's tasked you and he's tasked me with the responsibility to be ambassadors of reconciliation to be agents of joy and love and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control in conversations on social media because he sees us and our faith is in that and our significance is in that alone can you go out into this week and speak into the circumstances of life and the circumstances that we're facing and say it over and over and over God sees me he sees me he sees me God would you help us as we venture off into this week as we take seriously our responsibility to be these ambassadors of reconciliation to sit down in this space the children of Israel were in exile for 70 years. We don't anticipate this lasting that long. We hope. Would you give us patience? Would you unlock our limited perspectives? Would you remind us that the narrative of God is the narrative to which we belong and our lives have significance in this story because you, the God of the universe, see us. And you have mission and work for each one of us to accomplish. And may we go into this week celebrating and seeking and living in that truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. Let's worship together as we close.
Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.